We are going to be continuing as a church. We've been in the middle of a series on politics, and you may notice I'm still wearing the traditional clerical collar. I said on the first week, as I fretted and got anxious about what color shirt I was going to wear uh, during this series, because every color seemed to represent every political party, I thought, you know what, stuff it. I'm going to go old school. And someone said it's New Zealand first, but I think stuff them. The clerical collar was here first. New Zealand first is copying us, not the other way around. So um, if you're wondering why I'm in my vestigial garments, that is why. Um, yeah, but thank you for joining us, and we are going to kind of continue in this space. Um, so if you have been following along, we have been talking about politics as a church, which is something that I feel like the rules say you shouldn't do, but it's golden sands, and well, we never follow those anyway. So um, we are jumping into it, and we're discussing it. And uh, so the first week we looked at it, and we looked at how politics really, what we're looking for is a third way of engaging. Often throughout history, Christians have either gotten all into the we're going 100% in, we are going to get into politics, we're going to change things, we're going to run things. And while that's had some benefits, it's also had some catastrophic failures, like the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisitions and the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, often if we go all in and we put all of our hopes into the political world, then we get into a space where the ends justify the means, and that leads to very dangerous things. Uh, the flip side is we can often be like, ah, oh, it's too complicated, I don't care, I'm not going to pay attention to it. And we just totally dissolve and we, we separate completely and we disengage, we don't pay attention. But that's hard to do when so much of scripture calls us to, get, to engage. I mean, Jeremiah says to the exiles when they got carried out into Babylon, seek therefore the welfare of the city in which I have placed you. Peter, when he talks to the church, says you guys are foreigners and exiles in a foreign kingdom. Live holy and productive lives that the people around you may prosper. And so the scripture calls us to engage and we have a a role to play as a prophetic witness in our nation. And so we have to like, we can get stuck in either one of these camps. And so what the series has been talking about is trying to find a third way to engage where the presence and the mode that we carry, not just the content, but the presence that we carry witnesses to a different sort of kingdom. Uh, last week, we talked about the dangers of polarization. I uh, listed off way too many sociologists and sociological studies uh, that basically say the world's ending and we're all going to die um, and there's no hope. That's basically how I felt about it. Now, what it essentially says is that modern trends, whether it's the, the crisis around information and what can we can know or uh, algorithms on social media or media's media groups trying to have airtime, you have all these trends that are working so hard to polarize us and to separate us and to move us into these ideological camps where you have to identify as this, you have to think this way. And if you're on the other side of that debate, you're trying to destroy our country. And so much of our trends are pulling us that way. And we talked last week about the huge dangers of that. And that as Christians, we are called to be a reconciling presence, which is what, Christ, uh, what Paul says to the Corinthians, which is Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation to carry on to reconcile others to the gospel. So last week we very much talked about how you need to care about politics and you need to have positions, but the truth is if the way that you are carrying those, if the way that you are communicating those is pushing people away, it's, if it's dehumanizing people on the other side of the aisle, if it's shutting down conversations, you actually need to take a step back and look at yourself in the mirror because that's not what faithful discipleship to Jesus looks like. And so we're trying to build on this. And I was saying to someone before um, that this politics series, I've called it politics, but more than a politics series, it's actually a discipleship series. 
where I'm trying to help make sure that our discipleship to Jesus carries through as we engage into political spaces. So that's where we've been. And now today, hopefully, we can be a little bit more practical and give you a few more tools and values with which to carry with you as you go into the voting box. So with that, why don't we pray? Jesus, you know this is complicated. And there are some of us probably watching this who we really care deeply about this. Uh, politics is really big on our radar. We think about it. We talk about it a lot. We post about it a lot on social media. And um, while there are others here who just couldn't care less, there are some in our community who just can't wait for this season to be over so that we can get on with our lives. And in the midst of that, it's really difficult to know how to be faithful as we have to pick through very complex issues and multiple parties and rhetoric and spin and fake news. Um, Jesus, in the midst of all that, we again just remind ourselves that you are Lord. You're Lord over the nations. You're Lord over our nation. And you're Lord over our church. And you're Lord over our lives. And so as we seek to find a faithful way to engage in the political world around us, I pray that Jesus, you, our King, and our leader would lead us every step of the way. And I pray that as this, this election comes up, we would actually be formed more and more into you, Jesus. That we would be more like you the more we engage. And that anyone who encounters us feels like they've encountered something of you. So I pray that you would lead us and guide us today. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, so we've talked about these big issues. We've talked about these two separate camps. We've talked about polarization and these big societal issues that are shaping the ways that we interact. But there's also a really practical thing that I've been aware of that a lot of us are probably thinking, which is you're probably sitting at home and you're like, cool, Colin, that's great. Information pandemic, like we don't know anything. Great, polarization algorithms, I'll just throw away my phone, that's fine. But there's still gonna come a point for all of us where we're gonna have to walk into that voting booth and we're gonna have to tick a box. <laughs> We're going to have to sort through which candidates we're going to pick. Um, and maybe you've done some pre-work around this. There's some good online surveys that are supposed to help, like uh, Vote Compass or I Stand With. They're both online there. <laughs> We've got people in the cheap sheets shading, shaking their heads to ones that they like and don't like. And this is crack up. I love it having people here. Um, it's actually so nice. When you've got these different groups, often you go in there and it's these quizzes and they'll ask you questions about, do you like this or do you like this? Do you vote for this policy? Do you vote for this policy? And you've often got a continuum of how strongly do you believe that versus how weakly do you believe that? And I suddenly, if you've done those, I know they're supposed to be helpful, but whenever I get halfway through one, I'm just suddenly aware of how much I don't know. And I'm like, uh, environment, yeah, the environment should be good. And then you're like, wait, but should that come at the cost of businesses and regulations and uh, do I feel really strongly about that? And do I feel stronger about the environment than I do about and the, the, these things? And then I get halfway through and then I usually quit because I'm like, I don't know, it's too hard. Um, and this is one of the challenges that when we come into, and it's this question around values. It's this huge component. Um, we talked about last week how there's so much information we can't sort through it. Um, political parties and political groups know that as well. Um, in a perfect world, if you were going to decide who to vote for, in a perfect world, you would all go and download each um, political party's um, 
manifesto. You'd look at their goals, and then you would run that up against previous year's budgets, and you would gauge how realistic that policy is based on 2018 budget and 2019 budget, and then you'd think through how that correlates with the uh, high debt rating that we're facing in 2020 with uh, COVID-19 problems. In a perfect world, we'd do that. Is anyone going to do that? Anyone in this room going to do that? Anyone downloaded all the manifestos and run that against past budgets? No, everybody's shaking their heads. They're like, no, because it's, it's hard, and I, I get that. It's inherently complicated. And so politicians and everybody else knows that too. And what, what we find is that people, rather than voting based specifically on policies, we tend to vote more and more based on values. What are the principles that we care about, care about and which party seems to achieve those most effectively. And it raises up the question about kingdom values. Is there a set Christian set of values that we all as Christians need to hold on to, or can that be diverse? And you'd get different opinions there. Some would say you need to be really diverse, and you can have lots of different kingdom values. While on the other end of the spectrum, you'd have some people who would say, um, no, there is only one set of kingdom values, and you need to vote on this. And then you can almost narrow it down to like one issue, it's about this issue. If you care about this election, you're either going to vote for this or vote for that. And that's really hard. And so I've got a little illustration that I'm going to invite some people to help me up with because these values actually come into play on what we're actually doing behind the scenes when we're voting. And so you may notice, do you want to kill that slide, Alex, so we can see? Over here, I have some jars. And these represent the big things that we have to do as a country. And now I'm going to invite two people who you all know and love to basically allocate funding or priority to those different jars. So Carl and Brooke, do you guys want to come up and join me today? Come on, each of you can join on one side of me here. Wow. Look at the, um, the color coordination. Yeah. There's that. Um, <laughs> hey, well, look, thank you for joining us. I wonder if I can get your guys' help with something. Because sure, often voting, we can be confused about what we're voting for and how we're voting for things, and what does that actually translate? No, I'm pretty set, to be honest with Are you. Are yeah. you? Well, then this, this exercise should be easy for you. Yeah. So what we're doing in, in voting is we're basically, with our votes, with our choice, we are allocating priority to different things. And sometimes we allocate priority in... Uh, funding, um, so we put more money into certain budgets. Sometimes we put more priority into issues, like moral issues. We like a party that stands for this or doesn't stand for that. And essentially what we're doing when we go into a voting box is we're spending beans. We are pouring beans, we're spending beans on what we think is most important. And so up here, I have some jars, and I want you guys to be a voter in a voting booth. Pretend to be the government, and you need to allocate priority. The government, eh? Yeah, you can be the government. <laughs> Okay. God help us. Um, you could be the government, and we have to allocate priority. So you may not be able to see it on camera, but we've got a few things. We've got, um, I actually have to come around to this side. But yeah. Uh, business development, uh, working for families tax credits, health care, um, social welfare, moral issues. Come over here. We have transport and infrastructure, defense, uh, Maori development and emergency services. And so uh, now, Colin, you've forgotten one? Yeah, we, we don't have the environment What on the there. heck, man? <laughs> I'm just going to pour the beans on the ground. They can just grow up. That's it's like pouring out your drink, eh? Yeah. Um, actually, funnily enough... Um, and climate change? Where's climate change? Well, that, all well, that does come under the environmental issues. Well, but does yeah. it, though? Well, so, yeah. Hold on. Okay, we're not getting into the debate here. You guys are allocating beans. You can do that at home. Um, these are actually primarily drawn from the budget that was passed this year in May, with the exception of moral well, the values. The budget's changed now. 
Get the bait. In, get the bait. in May, um, we passed this budget, and all these things are the top line items in the budget that they've passed. Now, you're right. Uh, there's not a specific environment one, but Why that would come up into transport. You will find out. All right, so here's your goal. Lord help us. Let's see if this works. What you each can, can you grab the beans? I will grab the beans. You grab the beans. I'm quite disappointed I'm they're, not, they're not jelly beans. Yeah, I understand. Come back over here. Hey, I need the beans I'm, too. I'm ready to go. I need beans. Right. I got my vote. Which, I'm ready. <laughs> which beans? Pick a color beans. of beans. Ah, uh, Carl ended up with green ones. Um, what we're going to do is each of you has to take a moment, and I want you to allocate your beans in funding priorities into the different jars. Because essentially, when you're voting on Sunday, or on the Saturday, that's what you're doing. You're allocating which party do you think will allocate the funding or the priority in the best way possible. Does that make sense? So which one of you okay. wants to go first? We'll go we'll together. Do it together. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it together. together. No, 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 we need to do it separate because then we can tell wh who's allocated what. All right, now do it together. Just go ahead yeah. and allocate your beans. Go ahead. What have we got here? All right, so they're looking through. You, so help me, you cannot do them one at a time. You have a whole jug full of beans. Y'all need to start pouring or we're going to get a revolt. Yeah, just, you can only allocate your own beans. You can only allocate your own beans. You can't allocate someone else's beans. Yeah, Carl, you do your beans. Let's see here. Um, it's worth noting, as you guys allocate the beans, for, e for any one of these to be fully funded or functioning properly, the beans do need to fill the jar. Well, that's not possible. I don't have enough. Welcome to politics. They need to fill up the jar for it to be a functioning system. Otherwise, it's going to be decrepit. There's going to be problems. It's going to be underfunded. People are going to be angry. So if you want it to work, it's got to be fully funded. All right. Otherwise, it's you know it's just going to be issue. So you got to allocate your beans. Allocate your beans. Uh, you got to read to figure out where it's emergency services. <laughs> you guys are doing sprinklings here. All right. <laughs> Depends on whether that came through the mic or not. I don't know how well it picks up from this side. Alex, does that? Oh, that picks up. Okay, good to know. So the mic is hot from your side as well. You're only going to put a couple of things in our transport. Have you seen our roads? Honestly. Well, that's more important than the shoes. I guess we need some emergency service. Colin, you've also forgotten one. Where's the border? Huh? Where's the border? That would be under that would be under defence. Okay. Well, then we need something there because our border is crap. Oh, you're out of beans. I'm out of beans. All right. Well, there's a few sprinkled out here. There's a few that are on the table. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Uh. Carl's got a few more beans. You can't. You cannot choose how someone else. He's allowed to allocate his own beans. All right. All right. Here we go. So, let's take a look at this. Um, hopefully, Alex, do you want to zoom in on some of these? And I know that some of them are covered up. So we'll just try and maybe move. Do you think you can set it up on top? We'll see what we can do for you. We'll figure out. I was imagining doing this in person with bigger jugs uh, as everyone was in the church. So this is fun doing it on camera. Um, look, oh, that's not going to work. We'll just leave it there. We'll squish them down. We need something to put the beans on top of. Or you just squish down the papers. Oh, look that, at that. That's smart. <laughs> see, that's I'm, why he should be the governor. Well, I'm, I'm getting mine balancing on top. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... 
what we want to do is, real quick, can you walk me through why you allocated your beans where you did? Um, so, Carl, let's take a look. You allocated a lot of beans. Okay, first and foremost, uh, none of these, with maybe the exception of social welfare on huge sacrifice by Brooke, um, none of them are really full. So that means everything is going to stink. Yes! Except for social welcome welfare. to our current government. Everything is going to be... Whoops. Whoop. Everything is under... Things falling over all the time. So nothing is going to be working, and whoever is using any one of these services are going to be inherently frustrated with you because it is not working as efficiently as it should. Yeah, Carl. So everyone's mad. Welcome to politics. Um, so Carl, talk me through some of your decisions. Why did you allocate your ones where you did? So I looked at kind of the, the current climate yep. of where we're at. And, mm -hmm. and to be fair, Labour has done a very good job at, uh, with the with the whole COVID process and stuff, mm -hmm. but now it's time to rebuild and it's time to uh, get our economy on track. Right. Okay. So you've allocated a lot to business development. Definitely. Um, a lot to transport. Yep. And then a lot to defense. Yep. So maintaining your business interests. Yep. And some to emergency services. Yeah, I put some in healthcare as well. That's <laughs> quite important. I can't, I can't to be fair, Brooke stuff. has like kind of overdone the healthcare. So... <laughs> Overdone. So yeah. you've, so you've allocated your beans. Shh, you're not talking yet. Okay? I have a few questions for you. Yeah. If I were a political pundit or yeah. a commentator, mm. there's a few things I've got to ask okay. if you're the government. Fair enough. Which is, first and foremost, you're supposed to be a Christian, right? Well, maybe. So why do you hate poor people? Look, this is social welfare. You haven't allocated any beans to social I don't housing. Hate poor people. I you think do. There is a better no, way of giving people jobs. No, you hate poor people. They need I this now. That will take years and years and years. We don't know if that's ever going to do. We have trickle down economics. It's bit diddly squat. People have needs now, and you don't care about so them at all. So we're just going to keep giving all right? people so money. All right. So here's your so next that problem. They can go and use it for um, other reasons. I didn't also know you were racist. Over here you have Māori development, and you have not allocated any funds into Treaty of Waitangi tribunals or Māori development or Māori interests. I feel like that's working right as it is. Oh, Lord have mercy. Look, and finally, the last question I have for you. Um, here, moral issues. Yeah, and? I thought you were Christian. What if your party is exploiting the poor, they're promoting abortion, they're happy with euthanasia, you don't care at all about the moral issues that our community is facing? This is what Christians are supposed to care about more than anything. Well, and you don't care about them at all. I don't know about that. I don't even think you're a Christian. I don't think you're a Christ follower. I think you're just a rich jerk who only cares about defending his own interests. That's pretty fair. Yep, fair enough. All right, all right, Brooke, can you walk me through how you've decided well, what well, you've got unlike here? Well, unlike my, uh, my competitor over here, uh -huh. um, I actually care about the poor people. Yes, And so right. I have um, a fairly uh, substantial amount of the budget towards how, social how are development. How so yes. You're done, you're done. And, so you have social welfare um, and health care. You've allocated a lot, care. Care. A lot I mean, there. You yep. know, if, if, you, if you get sick, you need the government to, to help take care of you. Yeah. Watch the government's yeah. thinking. And then we, um, we have Māori development. Māori development. We, we need to put a bit more effort into the, the relations and yep. um, Treaty of Waitangi. Um, mm -hmm. I put a few beans, like three beans into transport. Three beans into transport. Yeah, there's more important issues. Okay. Um, and then what else was over there? Working for families. Yes, working so for families, large, tax credit. A large amount of our population yep. are families that live mm -hmm. on or below the poverty line. Yep. So I think these two yes, but you need issues businesses are for really, those important, work really important. Really um, important. Uh, so, yeah, healthcare. Okay, fair enough. Yep. So, I mean, there's a few questions for you. Is. Um, look, oh, there's we. Three. There's, look, oh, no, there's six down there. We have people in our community who work for St. John's, and do you not care about their jobs? 
Because right now, this is emergency services. Police, fire, rescue. Clearly, if you're in a fire or a car crash, are you, happy? you don't want people you to come You say you care you. about the poor, but did you know that the poor are actually proportionally like, disaffected by poor policing in their communities and also fire risk, and you've allocated nothing for them? I feel like this is a whole lot more identity performance about seeing, being seen well, as a person who cares about the, the poor. Ones, so this is going to be... Yeah. You're just going to keep them in a cycle of government handouts while Absolutely. these problems keep on and hitting them. Where's that money going to come from? Right? Shh. My turn. All right. Other things here. Um, defense. Now, you may like social welfare. But you're going to like not, the coronavirus. In. We're not a bunch of hippies. The world doesn't work with just everybody love and care for each other. Well, we should. We should care Why? for our neighbor. Yeah. yeah what world do you live in? New Zealand. Yeah. That's, that has been defended by loyal support. And do you not care about the troops? Like people who well, are right I've now serving down there, and so giving so their <laughs> lives. We've got three troops. Here we go. And, they should come home and help their own nation. So Anzac, Anzac is a huge part of our culture. And you won't allocate any funding for any of our Anzacs. It's a disgrace, just an utter disgrace. And then over here, again, Brooke, you want to spend billions oh, and no, billions. She wants a puppy, and she needs someone to be able to pay for hey, that hey, puppy. And that is a my turn. My turn. Saying. You want to spend billions and billions on social development. You want to spend billions on healthcare. You don't service. get no puppy if you can't pay All right, for your This puppy. is about to be a domestic. Carl, you're banished. You're banished. <laughs> no. You're banished. <laughs> I want <must> say. <laughs> You're allowed to be quiet. Here's your final challenge, Brooke. You have all these programs that cost billions of dollars, and you have absolutely zero plan for how to generate that money. In a couple years' time, we are going to be bankrupt. <laughs> this, is, this is unfair. He's getting more beans than me. I have more money. Yeah. This, this well, is exactly we need to upend the whole right. system and have a, a just complete rehaul of everything. This is what the rich people would just... So if that were true, could you describe in a sentence how that system would be financially Where, where's viable? Where's education on this, by the way? There is no education yeah. in your Oh, yeah, education's not in, in there. Oh. See, I thought you were like a political commentator that <laughs> actually knew what he was talking about. But All right. clearly... Clearly, there are some political issues that you have no idea about. That is 100% accurate. I do not deny that in the slightest. All right, everybody give a round of applause for Carl and Brock. Thank you, guys. Now go away. Go away. Look, I know it's a ridiculous scene, and I have no idea. I can't see what's happening on the YouTube live stream, so if you're commenting, I have no idea what you're saying. Um, but essentially, this is the problem that we have when we get into politics, is so many of us, we want to come in with single-issue votes, or we've got these values that we really care about. But as soon as you start putting these into place, um, it becomes really frustrating. And then on political talk shows, talk back radio, that is, and other politicians talking about funding, what you just saw is 100% how it works. The reality is, there is no perfect system. There is not enough funding. And one of the challenges that I didn't even bring up is, so A, I forgot education, which is not ideal. That's a really big line item budget. But the other line item budget, which I didn't even bring on, was servicing the debt that the country already has, which takes up a, which takes up a portion of it. And the more we spend, the more in future generations we have to allocate more of our budget to just servicing the debts that we owe to other countries. And so none of these problems work. Like, none of these services will work, and we fight tooth and nail, uh, angry with people who don't spend the beans that way that we want them to be spent. You see, see how that happens? That trend of polarization, all you have to do is look at how someone else, what they really care about in their values, 
And if it doesn't line up with yours, you get to tear them apart because they don't care about the beans that you spent your beans on. And so this is one of the challenges of where do we spend our beans and how do we build value systems that help us to make some wise decisions. And that's, I wanna give just a few basic values that might help you posture and begin to sort out how you make some of these decisions, all right? And it's worth noting that I'm heavily indebted to Tim Keller, who's done some really good work around this, and so I'm drawing some of my framework around that. If we're thinking about kingdom values and values that inform how we vote or how we prioritize funding or how we prioritize our participation in politics, um, Tim Keller has drawn a couple of key values from the early church that we see from scripture that the early church embodied for the first 300 years. And they are fascinating. They're really, really helpful. Um, they're not exhaustive. You could probably do 30 values that the early church did really, really well, and then 20 values that you didn't really like. But I've grabbed these four because I think they could be really helpful for us in our context. And my goal is that by the end of this, you can actually have a practical lens to be looking through as you go through that vote compass, as you go through that I stand with system, as you go into the ballot box and start to begin to choose. So we're going to look at four different values that the church held and how they're really, really important. The first value is a deep commitment and care for the poor. Um, that has been consistent throughout the story of Scripture. From the beginning right through to the church today, we have always been marked by a clear concern, care, and compassion for the poor. A clear concern that they don't get forgotten or left out. And there are a thousand different verses I could probably draw out to help emphasize which ones those are. But there's one in Isaiah that's particularly helpful. Um, Isaiah was speaking to the kingdom of his day. And this is kind of, um, if David was the beginning of like the political kingdom of Israel, this is kind of near their sunset. This is near right before they get taken into exile with Babylon. And Isaiah is prophesying to Judah, that kingdom. And um, they'd gotten pretty corrupt they had gotten pretty far off the track. There was lots of idol worship, but also there was just rampant corruption in the state, uh, rampant abuse of power, political infighting, people getting killed so that people could stay in power. It had gotten really corrupt and decrepit. But the one thing that Israel had managed to do was they still managed to do all their ritual or many of their ritual sacrifices in the temple properly, and they were still doing these fasts. And Isaiah calls them to task on that. To this nation state, he says, look, you're performing all the right things. You're saying all the right words in temple. You're doing these fasts, but listen to how he tears them apart and talks about the kind of fasts that God longs for. It says here in Isaiah chapter 58, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then, once you do that, your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. What Isaiah was challenging the kingdom of his day was, it's not enough to just get into church or go into the temple, say the right words, offer the right sacrifices, do the right lip service to God. As a nation state, one of the things that they were called to was for a deep, committed care for the poor. 
that is an act of our worship. That is a sign of a healthy society, one where the least are not left behind. Um, there is a Jesuit priest by the name of Pedro Arupe. I think I said that right. Um, now, Pedro, he's a fascinating character. He was a Jesuit priest with the Catholics. So, hey, Chris, shout out, Catholic, Catholic theologian I'm drawing on. Um, Chris is here. He's Catholic, kind of Catholic Baptist. <laughs> You're something, but we like you. Um, so, Pedro, he had a fascinating journey. When he was young, he was actually stationed as a Jesuit priest in Japan. And in Japan, he had a really difficult time. He tried to do converts. He tried to connect people for meetings. And he just kept hitting these walls and not getting forward anywhere. And then World War II broke out, and he was seen as a political risk. And so he was put into internment camps. He was separated off from people. He was closely watched with great suspicion. And he had a really, really difficult time. And he was stationed on the fringes of Hiroshima when the atomic bomb fell. And so he was there, and he and his, uh, a couple of the people were working in that city. They were covered by a hill that they were surrounded behind, and they managed to survive. But he marks it as one of those defining experiences as a Catholic, as a Christian, seeing this bomb drop and seeing the devastation that was wreaked upon that city. He then spent the next countless years. Uh, immediately then, he used all of his healthcare skills, and he immediately began to go and care for those who were burned, injured, wounded, taking on risk of radiation sickness himself. And that profoundly affected him. And he realized that he met with God. While he didn't get forward doing all the traditional ways, as soon as he began to meet with the neediest, the poorest, those who were most disaffected, particularly in Japan's reconstruction, he began to see how God cares and works amongst the poor in a way that is especially unique. And he ended up coining this phrase, which then has been really helpful in theology, which is saying when God looks at societies, God has a preferential option for the poor. God has this unique stance where he is consistently looking and listening for the oppressed. He is listening out for the voices who are being silenced. He is caring for those who are being left Behind. You see that in Exodus, you see that in uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you see that in the prophets, you see that in Jesus, you see that in Revelation. God's heart leans out for the poor. And so for us as Christians, we need to have that as a guiding stance for us. As we talk about engagement politically, there has to be a care for the poor and the needy that has to filter somewhere strongly in our priorities. So the care for the poor. Now the second one is personal morality. Um, traditional language that we would use for this is holiness. Um, and now the first one is one that usually progressives really like to talk about a lot. Um, but the second one is one that progressives tend to get a bit nervous about and conservatives tend to really value, which is that holiness, personal character, personal morality, they're not just vague things that everybody can do what they want. They actually really matter. The author of Hebrews says it this way, uh, make every effort to live in peace with everyone, and hear this, to be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And this is one of the things that we struggle with, um, but it's something that as Christians we do need to care about. Um, it's coming up with debates like euthanasia is an inherently moral debate. What is right? What is wrong? And now I recognize we're going to talk about it tomorrow night. I recognize that different people will land in different spaces. And there's some room for, there's some room for that. But you should still care about it as a Christian. 
character and holiness should factor strongly in the people that you're engaging with. And so if you begin to see leaders who are not displaying holiness or morality or character in their lives, as Christians, that should give us pause. Just because they're on the same political aisle as us, that doesn't mean we should be advocating for them anyway. Like, oh, they've got their faults. That No, we should be free to say no, whether it's our favorite leaders or the opposition's favorite leaders. We should really care about character, holiness, and morality. Because they affect a whole kind of decisions. Hebrews, those with holiness will see God. Those with character will lead better. And a nation that has strong values will be healthier in the long run. Now, there's debates around what those values are, but you should need to care about personal morality. And interestingly enough, I didn't have the verse here for it, um, but in Daniel, if you remember when we were doing Daniel a couple of weeks ago, after Nebuchadnezzar has that crazy dream about him becoming an animal and going wild for a while, and Daniel interprets that dream for him, if you remember the advice that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar, which was... Oh, great Lord Nebuchadnezzar, here's what I've told you. Now here's what you should do. Care for the oppressed in your country and do right by God that this calamity might not fall on you. Care for the poor, personal character, and holiness. As Christians, those should be things that we hold on to, regardless of which political party you're on. So the next one is the early church was consistently multiracial and multi-ethnic, aggressively multiracial and multi-ethnic. Um, I mean, throughout scripture, that's been a defining characteristic. Leviticus talks about it this way. says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners once in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so the nation state of Israel had this clear call to care for the foreigners and the, uh, foreign, the immigrants who came up along with them. And the New Church grabs on, the New Testament church grabs on that and develops that even a little bit further. If you remember when we did this on Revelation, when we see a picture of this heavenly community, Revelation 7 talks about it this way. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hand. And this was a defining characteristic of the early church. I mean, uh, Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, the main struggle that they're working out is how to be multiracial and multiethnic. And Paul goes so far as to say in Ephesians that if we are not joined as one across our racial bounds, then we are not the church. This is the way the gospel is proclaimed. And the early church, at a time when lots of different religions back in the first century were pretty nervous about having different kinds of ethnicities as part of their group, the early church was so strong. Gentiles, Jews coming together to share one meal. So what that means for us is as Christians, we should be really caring about how the immigrants and the uh, people who are not born in this land are treated and cared for in this place. Um, and we should be worried when governments begin to do things that challenge that. So a clear example of this was, is the Chinese poll tax. Now, a lot of people aren't uh, aware of this, but back in the 1880s, there was the big gold rush um, here in New Zealand, and quite a few Chinese people began to immigrant over to New Zealand, were working in the mines, and um, 
New Zealand at the time, which was predominantly white and obviously Māori, but Māori were at the uh, waning stages of power. This is post-land wars. Um, so white Pakia New Zealand was mostly in control. They began to be, get incredibly nervous about the amount of Chinese people in their country. And they began to enact specific legislation that barred Chinese people from coming into the country. And it was called the Chinese poll tax, where if you were a Chinese person coming in, you had to pay an extraordinary amount, an extraordinary amount just to come on an immigrant into New Zealand. Beyond that, uh, they put rules and restrictions around cargo ships, which were the main ways that people traveled. And they said that you could only have so many Chinese people per amount of cargo that was on your ship. So even if lots of them had money to come, it was heavily restricted by the cargo that you had, so you could maybe only get one or two Chinese people. And then beyond that, the rules and regulations became more and more restrictive. And it radically dropped off the rate of Chinese. It shot up racism within New Zealand. If you go back and look at the old New Zealand Herald uh, cartoons, comics, and rhetorics, it was abusively, horribly racist by Christians and members of parliament against Chinese people in the community. And the most terrifying thing is that the full extents of those laws were not fully repealed until 1944. 1944. This is the only law in New Zealand's history that was specifically racial. The only immigration law that singled out one specific ethnic community. So as Christians, if we see policies like that, that should make us nervous. That should cause us to worry because we have been called to be multiracial and multi-ethnic. The church does not be bound to one nationality, right? And so the final thing that the early church did, which is another unique one, which is nonviolent, um, incredibly nonviolent in their stance. Um, it's worth saying, too, that multiracial and multi-ethnic, um, I don't know, often care for the poor gets tend to get put on labor and greens, like that's what they care about. Uh, personal morality tends to be more national, more conservative, usually. Uh, Multiracial, multi-ethnic, that's an interesting one because it flips by whoever's in power. I mean, in America, you would typically think that uh, it's Republicans that are really nervous about immigration. But in New Zealand, it was labor that wanted to ban people from buying houses who had Chinese-sounding last names. And that was only five years ago. Uh, that's a pretty racist policy. Um, so it swings, and that one can be in different parties. And so then the final one that you have is radical nonviolence. Um, and this is something that the church held on to strongly. They, they took Jesus' words in Matthew and said, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect or be holy, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect or holy. And so the early church took that mandate, and they took it incredibly seriously. They were very nervous about waging war or killing, particularly on behalf of nation states, because they were aggressively multiracial and multiethnic. And check out this stat, and this is 100% true. This is how seriously they took it. From the close of the New Testament era, which is probably around 60 AD, till about 174 CE, so about 100 years, no Christians served in the military or assumed government offices. They just would not even do it. And then from 174 till about 313, the ancient church treated those Christians who played such roles, including previous office holders uh, who converted, 
with great suspicion, which means for about the first 300 years of the church's life, they were incredibly nervous about picking up the sword to attack those who threatened them, which is a fascinating and incredibly interesting stance. And now that changes by the late 300s, because at that point, Constantine converts and become a, becomes a Christian, and then Christianity becomes the state uh, religion, at which point Christians then get a lot more comfortable with using force to enforce their opinion. But I think it's really interesting to note that for those first 300 years before they got into power, Christians were incredibly nervous about taking up the sword to attack those who were against them. And so for us, what that means in practical terms is I think we as Christians, uh, there's debate around, like there, Augustine talked about just war theories, and there may still be spaces for military and Christians serving on the military. I recognize that there are those spaces. But as Christians, we should be really, really wary when political parties on either side begin to talk about war or warfare or defending our identity and using uh, military might to justify that, particularly if they go to it easy. As Christians, we should be almost the last to finally relent on that decision, not the first to jump into it and get into the mob. So you have these four pillars, care for the poor, personal morality, multiracial, multi-ethnic, and non-violent. These four things. And what's fascinating about them is as you look through countries, you won't find really any political party that does all of them. You just won't. And it comes back to spending the beans analogy. As Christians, it's almost impossible to find a party that 100% lines up with our ideals, our values, because they're difficult. And so we have to make compromises. We have to spend our beans on different ways. You might think one party does a better job caring for the poor. You might think one party does a better job of holding on to personal morality. You think one, job, one party might do a better job of caring for the immigrants, and one might do a better job of protecting peace in the country. There's rooms for how you vote, but those four values really should orientate us a lot in our decision-making because they are key to our identity, and they have been throughout the entirety of church history which means we need wisdom. Values are great. They orientate us on what we want to decide, but we need wisdom on how to decide those things. And this is where I think Tim Keller says it incredibly well, uh, summing up and as we close, looking at those four values, he says this, the Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any particular strategy, whether that's high taxes in government services or low taxes in private charity, either one of those may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded. And therefore, we cannot insist that all Christians, as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. Likewise, he says, the Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant. But it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. It doesn't exactly prescribe an immigration policy. This means that when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Which is to say, labor doesn't get to own the space for caring for the poor. There's debate about whether high taxes and government services are the best way, or whether low taxes are the other way. Like, there's room for discussion there. But my hope is that if we all as a church have those same orientations, those same values, that when we talk about it, when Brooke and Carl talk about the poor, then they can both say, we both care about these people. And it's a, it's a discussion on what is the best way to help them. See, values guide us on our decision, but wisdom helps get us there. And it takes wisdom for us to know how to implement those well.
And so what I want to finish with is this, this call from Philippians. As you engage in the voting booth, hold on to those values. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And this is what I want to encourage you as we come to it. Talk with people about how they're spending their beans. Ask them, if you've been watching this, if you're watching this with the Connect Group, or ask your Connect Group next time, ask them, how do you think you're going to spend your beans? A really helpful question to build constructive dialogue is, what do you see as the biggest needs in New Zealand? Because both of us, whatever aisle of the party you're on, are usually probably going to agree on those. And then it becomes a discussion on what's the best way to get there, which is a helpful building discussion rather than a tearing down discussion about why don't you care for the poor? Why are you a warmonger? Why are you racist? Why do you not care about families? That is just inherently unhelpful. But if we have these four pillars, these values that guide us, and we have wisdom in our conversations, then when we come into politics, we can decide to allocate our beans in a helpful and wise way. I hope it's practical. I hope it gives you some discussion points and maybe ask the people around you, how are you going to spend your beans? But I hope that the presence that we carry as a church is that we are a people who are radically committed to the welfare of others, to the poor, to the needy, to personal morality and character, to a multiracial and multi-ethnic vision of life, and to a non-violent world where peace reigns. These things can anchor us and guide us into helpful discussions. Let's pray.